Welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a familiar Food Network face, or I guess I should say voice, on the podcast to talk about his multicultural world travels and how Chopped has evolved since that first episode over a decade ago. He's a respected chef, restaurateur, fixture of the New York food scene, and an OG judge on Chopped. It's Mark Murphy. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Um, I read that you have at least six cups of tea a day, as well as at least one espresso. So safe to say that caffeine is a crucial food group. Um, what number are, are we on right now? Uh, I'm only at four teas. Okay. So far. But, you know, it doesn't affect me. And it's interesting because I did one of those genetic tests at my doctor. And he actually looked at me and he goes, you don't really like coffee, do you? I go, I'd say, you know, I have espresso every once in a while, but no, not really. And he goes, I can tell because people have a genetic disposition to having caffeine affect them. Caffeine doesn't really affect me. So I can have an espresso at 10 o'clock at night and go to sleep. It doesn't affect me at all. And people are like, (laughs) well, how can you do that? I said, well, it's a genetic thing. Some people it affects people and some people it doesn't. Oh, wow. I did not know that. So so you drink the caffeine just for for the taste, not necessarily the heightened stimulation or anything like that. Exactly. Just uh, I like the flavor uh, at the end of each meal, either it be lunch or dinner. Actually, I, I, I stepped it up. I have one square of dark chocolate oh. and a, an espresso. And I do that at dinner as well. It's either a square of dark chocolate or else I am. Um, uh, there's a great chocolate store here in New York called the uh, Chocolat Moderne that I love to go to. And I buy a box of chocolates there and they do one with yuzu in it. Another one with Ooh. pistachio, uh, shiso. I, this is a great amount of um, chocolates that they make there. And I like to go there. And I just picked up a box yesterday, actually. Oh, all right. Mm-hmm. I'll have to check it out. Well, uh, uh, the fun facts section of your website is wildly interesting. And honestly, it sounds sort of made up at times. Um, was Prince Albert of Monaco really your babysitter in the late 70s? Yeah, well, he my parents were friendly with his parents and my father was stationed in Washington, D.C. And he was going to uh, I think he was at Georgetown then. And I was young and he, sometimes he didn't want to fly home for his holidays because, you know, they had school breaks. He's like, I'm not going all the way home. So he would just come stay with us in Virginia. And then my parents were like, oh, well, great. Somebody's here. He, we're going to go out to dinner. <laughs> Somebody here to take care of the kids. So uh, it was it was. Yeah, it's a little it's sort of a funny thing. Yeah. Just happened to be the prince of, of Monaco. No big deal. <laughs> yeah. Well, my parents still live in Monte Carlo now because they were friends with Rainier and Grace and they gave him, I guess, citizenship or whatever. So you can live there. And uh, so that, that's where they live. And they're uh, they're still, you know, they're still friendly with uh, with Albert. Uh, That's amazing. I mean, (laughs) you kind of alluded to all of this. Your background is so cultured, so complex. Your childhood was spent in cities across the world from Paris to Rome, as you mentioned, Washington, D.C., all before you were 12 years old. What do you think is the most significant impact that these early experiences really had on your relationship with the world? Um, I think, you know, for me, it was really more about my where where I ended up going with my career. It, the mm-hmm. relationship to my career was the most important thing, I think. I, I People are like, oh, you went to cooking school, you learned stuff. I go, no, I just ate really well as a kid. <laughs> and uh, and I, I was worried when I finally got out of high school that I was going to be hungry and have bad food. So I thought, well, if I learn how to cook, I'll at least be able to eat. I might I might be homeless, but at least I'll be able to eat. I can I can get a job in a restaurant. I'll be able to do stuff. And and so that and, and when I started cooking and I, I was working, I would work with some American 
cooks in New York. And the chef would explain something and they were like, make it taste like, and I was, I knew what that flavor was already. And they were like, I don't know. I grew up in Jamaica, Queens. My, my mom only made steak well done. I have no idea what you're talking about, you know? So it was, uh, it was, I, I felt like I had a little bit of a leg up in that sense. I, my palate had already been trained. Um, besides that, I mean, you know, I got to, I, I didn't have a choice. People were like, oh, you're so smart. You speak three languages. I'm like, I, I wouldn't have been able to play with the kids in the playground if I didn't speak those languages. I mean, my grandparents spoke French to me. I mean, I, I didn't have a choice, you know, my, so I was just sort of, you know, that's where I lived. There were people grow up. And, and do you think, so you think, you know, traveling so much, eating all these different foods, that is specifically what inspired you to become a chef or was it something else? I, I'm extremely dyslexic. So I was very bad at school. And when I decided I should probably, uh, well, when they, my college counselor told me to just go get a job because I would never get into a college. Uh, and, and I ended up moving to New York city and I literally lived on my brother's couch and didn't know what to do with myself. I was sort of a handyman helping out my sister-in-law's friends, like do, do things and projects. And I was living there for free. So I, I felt bad. So I would cook dinner every night. And after a couple of months, my brother looks at me and goes, well, why don't you go to cooking school? You seem to like to do this. I mean, we've been eating, you know, you're, you're on a souffle kick, you know, I'm making, I, I literally like, I remember once it was a whole week I was making every night, I was trying to perfect the souffles and making cheese souffles and chocolate souffles and doing all these things. And so finally I was like, Oh, cooking school, is that something you can do for a living? And I was like, huh, let me go check that out. So I went to a cooking school for three months and then went out and well, it was a little, there's a lot of roads to get me there, but I, I finally <laughs> got into a kitchen and I remember I was working for Terrence Brennan at uh, Pre Prefix on 18th Street. And after the first week, I was like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. And I love it. And I, it was the first time I was actually accomplishing something that people said I was doing something right. And uh, having that moment of like, oh, wow, I, I can do this. And because my whole life being dyslexic and going through the normal school where nobody knew how to deal with dyslexia back then, I was just always, you know, hey, I got one D this semester. All the other ones are Fs, but I got one past class. But I think D's passing in this school. <laughs> so, yeah, when I finally got to a point where I could uh, make my, you know, I felt good about something. Well, I, I was I jumped on the bandwagon. I got basically addicted to the business. I love the camaraderie. I love the the, the, the spirit. I love the work. I love the, uh, the people. I realized I would never have to wear a tie. I was so excited. <laughs> uh, and also your, your race car driving career didn't pan out exactly. So this was a, a good second job to, to go after. Yeah. I realized the race car driving thing when I really looked into it and that every race, it was like $5,000 worth of tires you would go through. I thought, yeah, I don't, I don't have that kind of money. And I didn't really want to go work in the pits and fix cars my whole life. I thought, yeah, I don't want to hang out with those people all the time. I mean, they're probably very nice, but I love big cities and I was in New York and I like, I like being entertained. I like the opera. I like ballet. I like concerts. I was like, man, if I'm going to be a in the in the uh, you know the, the the pits of the whatever they call the cars where they I'm not going to see any of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well let's let's go back to prefix. As you mentioned, your your first job as a as a line cook. What what did you what do you remember kind of learning in that first job that kind of moved you through this this career that we are now all looking at? You know, many years later. I mean, the, the first thing was it was it was shocking to me because I was working garde manger and there was this guy who was a Spanish kid who was working with me. He was teaching me my new state, my station. This guy spoke six languages. 
He was a ling- he, he had studied in Mexico and learned all these languages, but he was making more money as a line cook in New York than he was back in his country. So that was the first thing that shocked me culturally. I was like, oh, my God, like, you know, you think of immigration, you think of all these things that people are here. And, and the guy was fantastic. We, I think we used to just speak in French or something all the time. It was kind of drove everybody crazy. But, you know, for me, it was I worked there for almost two years. And David Pasternak was one of my um, sous chefs. And after. I'd say after about a year, almost two years, he looked at me and he goes, you're done here. You've learned everything you need to learn. You need to go learn in another kitchen. So get out. And I was like, (laughs) oh, okay." And it it was to me, that was the moment where I realized I have to go learn from different chefs, absorb everything I can, move on to another kitchen and do the same thing over again. And I have to keep doing that to get better at what what I'm doing here. And I never really... You know, kitchens are not very complimentary. They don't say, oh, good job. You know, it it wasn't that sense. Uh, You you had to understand you were doing a good job because that's when you weren't getting yelled at. You're like, oh, wait, I must have done it right. I didn't get yelled at. (laughs) Uh, So I uh, you you learned how to maneuver in a kitchen as well. It was my first job. So you kind of have to, you know, stuff's getting thrown at you. It's like, oh, I did that wrong, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) How would you describe or, or maybe compare, you know, the kitchens, you know, here in New York or in the U.S. to some of the kitchens that you worked in uh, overseas and in France and Italy and that kind of thing. Well, the the biggest shock to me is when I worked at Prefix, there was a butcher like he came in, butchered all the fish, all the meat. There was a, you know, a prep guy doing X, doing this. And then there was the dishwashers doing their job and there was porters doing their jobs. And so as a line cook, I would go in and get my station ready, maybe make the sauces get all the meat out of the walk-in. And we were really busy. It was a very busy restaurant. And you would go and I would stand on the line for hours and just keep cooking my whatever, six dishes. It was like, it's kind of like playing the drums for six hours straight, right? You're just cooking <laughs> and cooking. And when you needed something, you would holler and they would bring you more lax of lamb for your station or whatever it was. And when I went to France, I worked in a much smaller restaurant. It was only a 45 or 50 seat restaurant, one star Michelin. And we did everything from wash our own pots clean the clean clean the stoves after each service we would literally scrub them down you know once a month we would get on the ladders and wash the ceiling and if i got like say we uh, there was a dish a wild hare dish a ra- you know wild rabbit i would get the rabbit whole with the with the fur on it right oh, wow. and you had to start from scratch taking the fur off break it down break the bones you make your own sauce you do your own prep i mean you did everything from start to finish in this kitchen where i worked in in paris and it was interesting to me because it was like i was loving it cuz i you know i got to learn how to break down the rabbits i got to because there was no butcher if it was on your station you butchered it i remember getting a, a tuna in one day and it was this big tuna on my cutting board i'm looking at it going I've never butchered a tuna. So I called the sous chef over. I'm like, can you give me a little hint? He goes, yeah, it's, it's this. So you, so the, the, the bone structure is this way. You both, both, okay, there, go at it. You know, you basically needed to know a lot more. And also you had to be much more interchangeable between stations. Like for example, I remember the pastry chef, uh, the pastry guy who worked, he was the pastry cook worked downstairs and he broke his ankle and I was working the fish station and the chef goes, Hey, I mean, I can it's your turn. Go downstairs. Do the. You're going to work pastry for the next couple of months. So this guy gets better. I was like, oh, man, I hate pastry. I suck at pastry. I mean, the first time I went down there, he like I had to try to figure. I remember I made 12 kilos of puff pastry that didn't rise. I'm like, oh, boy, this isn't going to work out very well. <laughs> but, you know, you have to figure it out. Had to, you know, and we are we made our own bread there. We made our own ice cream. So I got a real good education. I found I got a better education in sort of 
the spectrum of what happened in a kitchen when I worked in Paris. Uh, working in all these different kitchens and different countries, cities, how has your cooking style evolved all over all these experiences? And how would you describe it today? I, I worked, I always shot for high, high end. I mean, I went from prefix. I went to a one-star Michelin restaurant. I worked at Ducasse at Monte Carlo, a three-star Michelin restaurant for a little bit. I worked at Le Cirque, which was a very fancy restaurant back in the day. I uh, was a chef at Cellar in the Sky on top of the World Trade Center. So I always shot very high. And I always thought to myself, if I know how to do it really well and perfect and really no technique and know all that, I'll be able to do anything that's maybe, I don't want to say below that, but on parallel different styles of cooking. And I, I guess by the, that point of my career, when I opened my first restaurant landmark down in, uh, in Tribeca, I, I kind of was like, okay, I'm sick of the high end. Not that I'm sick of it. Like I don't, I don't want to do it or eat it. I was just sick of producing it that way. I wanted to do something where I wouldn't see my friends once a year or twice a year in my restaurants. I wanted to see my friends or my customers three times a week. I wanted to do something that was accessible, understandable. So I opened a restaurant that was very reasonably priced. We did really reasonably priced wines. And I I opened a restaurant where we were doing 300, 350 covers a night and a 110 seat restaurant over and over. And it was banging. I loved it. It was like, uh, this is, I, and then, and my cooking style, you know, had to, had to vary. I couldn't do the, you know, the little tiny things. And, and that's sort of, it's the way now it's more the way I eat, the way, the more, the way I cook now, I want to be more, I let the ingredients speak for themselves a little bit more. Simplicity is more for me, at least um, when I cook, I try to not mess up the ingredients in a sense. I don't want to stuff things and wrap them up and whatever. Like, let's just, let's just roast a chicken, man. <laughs> I got uh, one in the oven right now, actually. <laughs> uh, oh, sounds great. That's the style you feel most connected to. What, what region of the world would you say you feel most connected to in terms of your cooking? In terms of my cooking, I, I have a very heavy foot in France, a very heavy foot in Italy. And I would say, you know, that those are my bases. And of course, from that, you can pretty much go a lot of directions. I mean, I, I love traveling in the Middle East. I love Moroccan food. I love I've, I've been to Israel. I've been to Jordan. So basically, I kind of I hug the whole Mediterranean in that sense. Uh, and of course, being in New York now for the last 25, 30 years, I, I regional American food or whatever. And we live in New York City. You know, it's like you, you got everything here. It's great. I can. Uh, but, you know, I don't. I, I did dabble a little bit during COVID. I, uh, you know, I was at home cooking for my family every night. They kind of looked at me at a certain point and go, man, it would be really nice to have Chinese food. I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, let's get some books. Uh, let's start messing around, get some ginger in here and some soy sauce. So I've been, I have been dibbling and dabbling in sort of Japanese. I have a friend of mine who I cook with a lot, who's a very, he loves, he's, he loves Japanese food and he cooks a lot of Japanese food. So I've been I've been messing around with getting balances between mirin and soy sauce and sake and things <laughs> like that. So I've been I've been playing with it, but I would never let's say open a restaurant with that with, with those flavors. It's sort of a that's sort of like a little playground on the side. And and I you know I want to I like to keep it that way because I love to go to let's say a beautiful omakase. I'm like I, I don't have to know everything. I just want to taste it and feel it. You know. Kind of you fun. just want to go do that and have somebody else do it for you. Exactly. But the French and Italian, those are those are your the, your bases. Um, yeah. If you were if you were to draw a Venn diagram of French and Italian cooking, what would they have in common and what really sets them apart from each other? Well, I think uh, I, I love the flavors. I love the techniques the French do. Sometimes they're a little overdone. I love the Italian and I think the Italian food for me is where it just makes it 
really keeps it really simple. Uh, and, but I like to, I like to pull from both. Like, I mean, if you're in Italy, a lot of the times they definitely overcook their meat in France, they don't. Right. So I like to, I'm more on the, um, I like to cook meat more the French way or, you know, these braising things, but I guess, I, I mean, they're, they're interchangeable in a sense, but not, I don't know. It's just regional stuff. You know, like if you make a ratatouille, I mean, I'm in the South of France. If I'm, you know, making a, a cachuco, I'm somewhere in Italy or something. It's, but you can, you can play with them, play with both of them. Yeah. I mean, you've lived so many places, traveled to so many uh, different countries and experienced so many cultures. Why New York? Why have you picked New York to to kind of settle down and, and put down roots? Well, I, I, you know, I moved here when I was younger and I started cooking and I, I guess I just got, I got hooked. I mean, it's like people, you know, New York's like, they say it's like heroin. You get it in your <laughs> veins, you can't stop, you know? And, and I don't think I could go anywhere else. You got, you got to be here. And I'm not sure another city would have put up with me by my younger years. I, I was a little <laughs> bit nuts, maybe. And uh, nuts is okay in New York, which is good. And it's welcomed, I think. It's welcomed. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, I mean, it's, you know, there's that song. You can make it here. You can make it anywhere. And you still, I feel that way. And then, of course, I, of course, now I have a, a wife and two kids uh, that we're raising here. Um, so that's the other reason I'm here. And my, all, all my restaurants were here until before uh, the pandemic, I closed them all now, but it's, um, it was, you know, this was my epicenter. It still is. Yeah. I mean, when you think back to, you know, owning those restaurants, what were the most challenging and rewarding parts about it? I always say the most challenging was just keeping all the balls in the air, like just making sure everything was going the way it was supposed to go. And also understanding that it wasn't going to be that way. You have, I had 650 employees, whereas every one of those employees doing everything that they were supposed to 100% right 100% of the time. No, never happens. The most rewarding thing for me was when I would sit back and, you know, the, it was like I, I had a machine that was supporting 650 people's lives and their girlfriends or boyfriends or their kids. And like to be somebody that employed that many people that made that much of a difference in so many people's lives. I think that was one of the real, that was one part of the rewarding part of it uh, thing. The other thing was um, being on the food network and being whatever they want to, you know, this celebrity chef stuff uh, is <laughs> the, the, the greatest thing about that is the the reward you get for being able to help people. I mean, you go do fundraisers or you go cook a dinner, you auction off a dinner for 20 people and somebody buys it for $40,000. People, you know, you're 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 part of a catalyst that's helping out different charities. I work a lot with Share Our Strength, um No Kid Hungry, um and I know the, the Food Network does as well. I work I'm on the board of City Harvest helping feed hungry New Yorkers and and to me that is a that's something to get up for in the morning, you know? That makes you feel good. And then there's the obvious thing. When you had restaurants, you walked in the restaurant and you see bottles of wine on the table and people enjoying themselves and celebrating. And we're, we as a restaurant are part of those celebrations and part of those good times. And ever since I, they, they've been closed, I mean, I get texts, I get emails, I get people stopping me on the street like, oh, my gosh, I miss Landmark. My When my kid graduated, we had a huge party with our family there. We remember that so much. And it's that's moving. Uh, that's moving to be to be part of people, uh, to be part of people's lives like that. You can touch their lives and it's great. Would you like to to open another restaurant here again in the future? Uh, right now, things are a little tough, I think, yeah. in the restaurant industry. Um, I think it's going to take some time. I think there's some readjusting going on. I'm sort of sitting back and waiting and uh, trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. 
<laughs> Aren't we all right? Um, no, obviously, New York is is a, a special place for you as it is for, you know, anybody who has lived here. I know you actually worked in the World Trade Center at Cellar in the Sky at Windows on the World before the attack on September 11th. It's crazy to think that it's been 20 years since that day. How did being so intimately close to that tragedy change you as a person and as a New Yorker? Well, it's it's a hard one to talk about. Uh, you know, I was up there before Michael LaMonaco took over. So I was there probably I was I was about two years removed after when, when it actually happened. But I was living in Brooklyn and sitting on my fire escape by the water and, and watched everything happen. And I was actually had been in charge of a restaurant because I had left Windows and I went to work for somebody else. And I was in charge of a restaurant that was downstairs called Southwest New York, right in front of the boat base, boat the where they parked the boats. And I, you know, my, my chef that who had worked for me for years called me that day and said, what do I do? Do I lock up? I'm like, just go run. And, uh, and then of course, um, I mean, I think it changed all of our lives. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's still difficult for me to process. I mean, I went with my kids to the memorial and, uh, didn't last, didn't last very long. <laughs> I was yeah. so overcome uh, yeah. with emotion about it all. So it's a, you know, it's, um. It's tough. It's tough. I mean, I went back up there because I was actually uh, with another I had another partner and we were in in the process of bidding to be able to do the food and beverage at the One World Trade now. So I had the opportunity to go up there while it was under construction when there was no windows. It was just nets around the building up to like the 98th floor. And I went up there. That was the first time I'd been up there again. And I was like, I don't know if I want to work up here again. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm sure that that would be really hard. I mean, just knowing you know, what you saw during that and how resilient, you know, the city was and still is. And then seeing, you know, basically everybody go through a a different type of tragedy over the last two years with the the pandemic. What does it just say about, again, the resiliency and uh, of the people that live here? Well, we're we're still here. We're still doing it. I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I think I think it's, uh, you know, there's there's tragedies. There's there's events of uh, in every you know, every civilization goes through these things. And I think it's a uh, it's it's interesting to see we're still here. I mean, if you think about it and you go back to the Mayans, to the Roman times and all these things, you you kind of get a perspective. It's like, OK, is this civilization going to last? What's going to take us down? And I think, you know, the Romans were what, around six, seven hundred years. You thought if you were in the 300th year of the Roman times, you thought world was always going to be like this. And as we do, too, we think the world's always going to be like this. And so far, so good. We're we're all hanging in there. Hopefully we don't, you know, you know, kill each other along the way. But we're <laughs> it seems to be that we're um, that people we're, we're doing it. And it's uh, it, it's great to see there's innovation that comes out of it. There's, you know, this redirection that happens sometimes for the good. So we can just we're not here that long. Let's enjoy it. Up next, Mark tells us what it was like to film the very first season of Chopped over a decade ago. We'd certainly enjoy watching you uh, on Food Network for over a decade now. Uh, we get to see you, you know, your your approach to kind of mentoring these up and coming cooks and chefs as your role as a judge on Chopped. You've been a fixture on the show since the beginning. How did you first get approached about being on Chop by the network? The only thing I really remember is I had an assistant at the time and she was she had a desk close to mine and she handed me what they call a DVD. I don't know if anybody uses those <laughs> anymore. They're these round discs. 
I have a box of them somewhere. And <laughs> she said, I don't know, Food Network called somebody from a production company. They want you to do this show. I put it in my computer. I watched the pilot. I'm like, okay. Uh, and I went to work and we kind of, um, all of us, we, we all knew each other. But I think I, at a point, I think I said to everybody, I said, let's all have dinner together. I said, we're going to be able to do this better if we all get to know each other better. So I think we all had dinner together at one of my restaurants and we all like got Like who drunk. was there? Who, who was at, was, at that dinner? I mean, the original people were probably, I think it was uh, Aron Sanchez, Marcus Samuelson, Scott Conan, Jeffrey Zakarian, Alex, Amanda. I think that was the core original and Chris Santos. We were all there and we, and we were, we kind of like did this season and we kind of all were like, well, that was cute, you know, and <laughs> we had no idea it would be called back to do another one. And then we kind of did another one. And, and it sort of, it was one of those, one of those things that just had a very slow momentum climbing and climbing. It was like those roller coasters. It's like going up slowly and every season, it just got a little bit more popular. It wasn't like a huge sensation, I think, in the beginning. But as time went on, it was it just kind of kept, you know, building and building. And and it's still going. <laughs> yeah, it is. still It's still going strong. Had you done television prior to that? I mean, having been a chef in New York, you know, I, I, when I was at Cellar in the Sky, for example, on top of the World Trade Center. Oh, you got to go do the Today Show. You got to go do this show. You got to, you know, you have to go do all these promotional things. The PR people would send you to do television here and there. And and then when I had Time Warner, I think I some production companies approached me and they wanted to use my space for um, for shooting some pilots, some really some very dumb ideas and some maybe good ideas. I don't know. But I would always end up in them somehow. They would want me to do something. And I would always. So, yeah, I was always dibbling and dabbling. I never really thought of it as a, as anything. It was sort of, you know, OK, great. People say if you get on television, more people will show up at your restaurant. I'm like, oh, well, let's do that then. And then <laughs> and then the show came along and it was uh, it's a wonderful show in the sense that it's a competition show. It's entertainment. But I feel as though every episode people are actually by happen chance or learning something. Either learning something about a contestant and their and their history and their life and their struggles or their happiness and but also the ingredients. You know, we we talk about ingredients. These four people are cooking with these ingredients. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, wait, I don't know what that is. And and so they're watching an entertainment show, but they're learning about, I don't know, like, oh, you can cook an artichoke that way or this way or this way. Huh. I didn't know that. So it's fun to know that that's a it, it, that's happening. How do you think the show has evolved since that very first season um, to, to what we see now? I think uh, Linda Lee, who's the, who, who runs, who, who owns the show, runs the show or the producer uh, has kept it very much the same in the sense that we are the judges and we, those our opinions are the, what people hear. Nobody, the three of us are sitting there. It's, it's, we are the ones, there's no producing that, right? It's just, it's just heartfelt. We know what is correct, let's say, or things we understand things that work. So I don't think it's really, I think the, you know, the core of it is still very solid, very, very much there. It has not, I don't think it's changed at all since day one. You know, they don't, of course, they're, we, we now have to, you know, sometimes the Food Network wants us to do, you know, little other little things like, you know, we never used to do like, you know, I don't know what they call them, but like, you know, non-professional moms cooking or this or that. It was always just cooks. But as as time goes on, they need to find some other little hooks every once in a while. And sometimes they make us compete, which is always a, a real chore. 
<laughs> yeah, you've competed on on Beat the Judge. How did how did it feel to have the the tables turned on you? No, it's you know what I I, I look at it this way, and I think anybody that goes on the show, it's it's entertainment. I mean, it's a twenty minute round, a thirty minute round, a thirty minute round. I, nobody cooks like that at home. I mean, unless they're really in a hurry or whatever, but they're not being judged. And so a lot of the times, it's like yeah. It's not the be all and end all. We're there to we're entertaining. We're entertainers now. So I always have a really good time cooking on that show because, I mean, you like to win, but it's still it's just fun. It's 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 a fun it's a fun competition. And I and I love it. And some of my colleagues get a little bit more intense about it. But it's and that's what it's really funny as well. <laughs> what is your biggest strength and weakness as a competitor? It's that damn basket. It's the uh, it's the it's the all out equalizer. It's interesting because if you have three ingredients that you have used before in a dish five minutes ago or 10 years ago, you have a leg up from the person next to you who might never have made anything with those two ingredients. Right. So it's it is the great equalizer in the sense that, you know, you have to be able to think quickly. You have to be able to pull from your resources. People are like, oh, do you practice? I'm like, no, you can't. Your life is your your, your life's work is what you bring when you're standing in front of that thing. And sometimes if you have no idea, well, just start peeling an onion. You might need one. So then <laughs> while, you're, while you're thinking about something to pull this up, you know, it's kind of funny. At least you're not totally wasting time. Um, let's talk about some of these basket ingredients that you've had the pleasure or I guess at times displeasure of tasting. What is the strangest thing you've ever eaten on the show as a judge? There's a there's a long list of those types of things. I mean, um, I can go from buffalo spleen to eyeballs to testicles to uh, uh, pig anus. I guess we've had, uh, uh, you know, um, all sorts of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Has has anything ever uh, made you sick? No, my stomach's been able to handle it. There was there was one time I might have hit might have hit me a little little chicken raw chicken maybe got a little okay. got a little upset with me, but yeah, <laughs> not not that bad. No, nothing nothing you couldn't handle, um, especially no, with no. all your espresso and tea. <laughs> Can you think of anything that has not been in a basket that you'd like to see somebody you know try to work with? I, I mean, we've I, I don't know where they're finding new ingredients. I mean, they're going to have to invent them. No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I've, I, I honestly that I would never be able to. I'm sure if I said something, it's been in the basket. Maybe when I wasn't working, I'm sure. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think separates good contestants from the great ones on this show? Uh, you know, some people and it's interesting in the, in the beginning when the first time we did a $50,000 round, there was a guy named Madison Cowan. And, and you could just tell he was just good at the game. He was really good at weaving flavors together and 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 pulling things out and it was like some people are just better at it they can i don't know it's it's interesting i don't know why they're better i think it's just because they they can think on their feet or they can sort of they they can understand an ingredient and a flavor profile quicker than other people not that they're better at it they just maybe can just figure it out quicker than the next guy hmm. is there a judge that you like judging with the most now these we you know we're all family. We don't we don't say <laughs> it's things about like that. picking we, a favorite child. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I we the original crew. It's like a fraternity. I mean, we've known each other for so long 
you know, Alex Guarnaschelli said, you know, we're like, we've been together like as long as like the cast of Friends. I mean, it's ridiculous, but we've been, <laughs> we've been doing this for so long. The original, the original, uh, I think nine of us uh, is, is, is quite fun. It's interesting that we've been doing this for so long. Yeah, no, I get along with all of them. And now, of course, somebody once in a while, they're bringing in some new people, which is always, it's fun to meet them and see, see their experiences. But, but it is a, uh, you know, there's, there's a certain, when I'm judging with a new person, a new person that comes in, it's funny because for me, it's like, eh, we're just going to work. We're doing our thing. It's like, this is how it does. And, and sometimes you see new people and you kind of have to like carry them along and be like, this is what we need to make the show. We need just to describe what you're eating. Viewers can't taste it. We need to give them what the mouth feels like and the <laughs> acidity level and the, you know, maybe the spleen, how funky is that flavor? <laughs> Speaking of some of these uh, spinoffs and specials, I know you got to work with Martha Stewart uh, for one of the latest seasons that you guys filmed up in Maine. Um, had you met Martha before that? I, I had. And actually, oddly enough, I was with her last night. Oh, we went I saw, saw that the, on your Instagram. <laughs> the, the new, the, we went and saw the new Julia movie. Really, really beautiful. Yeah, you know, one of the first times I remember working with her, this was a long time ago, because she did come on and do a couple of things before. And I was like, oh, wow, I get to work with Martha Stewart. And I, I was just blown away at her, one, her knowledge. Uh, she's just really friendly, very, very open, very open to, to teaching anybody anything or talking about experiences. The nicest person. And I was always like, wow, this is great. But the one thing I did say to myself that first time I was with her, I thought, you know, I think I'm going to have to say it at least once. I've got to disagree with her. <laughs> <laughs> just because. <laughs> and, and I squeezed it in. I disagreed about one little thing and I brought it up and it was very, it was very nice. But I got to tell you, when we shot that whole thing, we did, we, we were up in Maine, uh, that whole episode, all, all of us up there together was Marcus and myself and, and Martha. It was just such a pleasure to work with. I mean, there's nobody more professional. There's nobody that's more open. There's nobody more, I mean, the, the friendly and, and, um, just a great person to work with. I, I was, I respect her so much after now having worked with her uh, now. And it's just, it's, it's, you know, it's a joy. Yeah. Did she give you any, any of her uh, heirloom lemon seeds? We had Ted on and he has apparently a lemon tree growing in his basement. You know, you can never believe that guy. <laughs> Heirloom lemon tree now? Oh, my goodness. No, I don't. Uh, I, I was asking her if she had any seeds left over from Snoop Dogg. Yeah, well. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> and did she? <laughs> uh, we can't get into that. Okay, we can't I'm get into that. just kidding. <laughs> uh, by the way, how, how was it kind of going on location and filming up in Maine for that that special? Well, you know, it would had been, you know, it was in during lockdown mm -hmm. basically or pat you know a little bit after a while it was it was nice to get out of the house mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> i was like you could have sent me anywhere i would have been happy <laughs> but we were in gorgeous maine we were on this they they took over this whole resort or, or property we all had to stay there and everybody was you know tested and goggled up and masked up and tested every day it was extremely you know the the, the covid protocol was very very strict but it was great because we were basically, it was like going to camp. And, you know, I'm at camp with Martha Stewart. We're having a drink after work. You know, it was great because <laughs> we couldn't go anywhere else. We're in the middle of Maine. It was wonderful. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a dream. 
Yeah, but so Mar- Marcus and I and Martha and Ted were just hanging out, having having a cocktail after work on this on this beautiful property in Maine. I was like, well, I couldn't ask for anything better than this. <laughs> As you do when you're in Maine with Martha Stewart and uh, and everyone else. Uh, well, this has been a-, a dream as well, speaking with you and-, and just hearing all of your stories. Like I said, wildly fascinating just to hear uh, your upbringing and everything. We're, we're going to finish things off with a little rapid fire round. And then we have one final question that we ask everybody here on Food Network Obsessed. OK. All right. So how do you take your tea? Black. Nothing in it. OK. Biggest source of inspiration. Um, I think my, uh, my, my grandfather. And why is that? He just, he was a, he was an engineer in the oil fields for a French oil company. And he was always, uh, he taught me a lot as a child, um, as far as, uh, ethics of working and how to work and, and how to work with your hands. And I think that was something that really, it's helped me over the years. Cause you know, as a, as a cook, as a restaurant owner, you're not just cooking, you're also fixing things and fixing plumbing and doing things like that. And he was always doing stuff around the house and he would always take time when I was a kid to show me these things. And I, uh, it was great. And, and, you know, just being there with him. Yeah. Uh, personal motto. Enjoy life. I tell people I have a, I have a condition. I've, I've figured it out after spending a lot of time with a therapist. It's called, I have this condition called joie de vivre. <laughs> you just you just enjoy life. That, I want to have that condition. Um, I feel like I try to, but yeah, that's a that's a good one to have. Biggest culinary pet peeve. I just don't like raspberry vinaigrette. Please, <laughs> I used to tell my sous chefs when I'd hire them, and we would get to know each other, and they would get to know the restaurant, and they could start running specials. I said you can run specials. Normally, you know, I want to see what you're doing before it goes out, but. If you ever make a va- raspberry vinaigrette, you're gonna have to go find another job. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen a raspberry vinaigrette on a on a menu in a while, so uh, I think that's you're I like think, I, I, I've taught a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> the word is out: no raspberry vinaigrette. <laughs> Favorite dinner spot in New York? Right now, I guess uh, you know it had been such a long time, and he was closed for so long. Uh, you know, a, a, a beautiful evening in Barbudo mm. with my good friend Jonathan Waxman is uh, is something that I, I truly cherish. Mm. Although I, I did do yesterday before I went to that movie to the, see the Julia movie, I did something that I have not done in a long time because they just reopened and it's just a new york classic it's the oyster bar grand central station oh yes i, I love mean, that spot uh, we my friend and i a bottle of chablis and a couple dozen oysters it was like ah this is and, and it's funny because you i i sat there and i watched those guys that are shucking it and making those those oyster stews and i was like this has been happening for years and years and years in this place. I there's been people sitting in this exact seat, you know, who are not alive anymore, who got to enjoy this. And it's mm. really wild. It's a it's a New York classic. It, it certainly is. Another New York classic is pizza. So what are your go to pizza toppings? I, I'm, I'm a strict anchovy. Strict I love, anchovy. I okay. love anchovy on my pizza. It okay. could be a pizza rosa or a pizza like a margarita with uh, anchovies. That's that's where I'm going every time. And where are you going for that pizza in New York? Well, you know, it's a little upsetting, but I walked by Bleecker Street the other day and Keste is gone. It is. And I think but I'm I'm hoping the one that's downtown is still there. Because I think it is. I think it is. That's uh, that's one of the best pies in New York. And I'm partial to the Neapolitan sort of pizza, you know, having been born in Italy. It's one of those things that I totally respect a New York slice, though. Yes. I'm not going to lie. Uh, what music do you listen to while you're in the kitchen? 
Um, recently, I've just been on the uh, on 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 the Spotify. I've been putting like you know old school reggae on uh, a bit. But then I was also I there's um I'm I'm a very big uh, opera fan too. So I've been okay. listening to some Wagner. All right. And what but, is your what is your go to meal at home with the family? Random Tuesday night. What are you, what are you guys cooking? I'll probably break down a chicken and throw some vegetables on a sheet tray, put the chicken on top of it. And then all those flavors come together and, you know, maybe some roasted potatoes. Yeah. Love it. Best. Uh, same here. Absolutely. Best piece of advice you've ever received. Oh, um, <laughs> it was it was for my career. It was a uh, long time ago. David Pasternak. I, I got to work late. I was maybe out too late the night before. And we used to have meetings where nobody else would want to hear anything in the walk-in. So he'd have to go step into his office. And as a young cook, he looked at me one day and he goes, Murphy, sometimes you got to go home and have milk and cookies. Enough of this partying. <laughs> so, and then every once in a while when he, things were, cause you know, you're in your twenties in New York and clubs are open all night and you're, you know, maybe there's, <laughs> you know, some people you want to meet and chase after, so to speak. Uh, and, yeah, He'd walk out of the kitchen sometimes and we'd be breaking down. He goes, Murphy, milk and cookies tonight, right? <laughs> yes, sir, chef. Why are you back here early and ready to cook tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> milk and cookies. I like that. All right. Person dead or alive that you would most like to have over for dinner? I always say Winston Churchill. I just find him to be a jolly guy. I would probably <laughs> enjoy his food and a nice cognac and a cigar after a meal and have a nice conversation. I think that that's something that I I, I truly enjoy. I used to have a roommate uh, who was a long time ago in the East Village. He was a philosophy professor. And one of the nicest things is sitting around after a meal, having conversation and talking uh, with somebody with a mind that thinks differently than yours and um, has different opinions. And it's nice to sit down with people and, and, and converse and have conversations. I feel like that's something that I, I cherish that I, uh, I, and it's not often you get that anymore. People think that you're supposed to think one way and that's it. And they don't even want to, you know, it's hard to have a conversation anymore about something that's important to the world, but without them already having the formed an opinion and not even be able to have a, what I would call a tennis match over, over, over a cognac at, right. at the end of a meal. So you, you and Winston over a cognac. <laughs> All right. This has been a blast. Uh, before we let you go, we do have one final question, and that is what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So we want to know what you're eating for breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. Uh, you can travel throughout the day. And, like, and I wasn't worried about my my calorie intake. Yeah, or, uh, no, my, yeah. Calories my, my, don't my, count my, on okay. this day. <laughs> I guess there are know, no rules. I, I do. One of the things I love for there's a um, I used to have it on my restaurant menu at Ditch Plains and it was a uh, it was um, cheddar grits with boudinoir and mm. a fried egg on top of it. It was such a great, a great um, sort of breakfast thing. Mm -hmm. Lunch. I mean, let's work our way into a nice bowl of carbonara because it's a <laughs> wonderful way to do things. And, you know, maybe a little uh, a, a perfect tiramisu for dessert and then okay. maybe dinner. Dinner, maybe I'm going to start off my dinner, uh, you know, maybe with some type of caviar starter. Mm. I like that. Uh, I like caviar. I think just straight up with a, a classic garnishes. Um, work my way into a beautiful ribeye, maybe with uh, maybe some pomme dauphinoise or pomme or something like that. Um, side dishes. I, I'm a huge I, broccoli. Rob is one of those things I just absolutely love. Mm. Uh, and then I'd love 
One of those fancy desserts, those fr- like a gâteau satinoé or a, what's that? Something like that. It's like it, it's you know those fancy French desserts or like <laughs> Just fancy. pastries, like even like or a beautiful éclair. Oh my god, I used to eat éclairs when I was a kid all the time. Maybe I'll finish it off with an éclair au chocolat. Yeah, and then maybe some, and maybe some milk and cookies. We but don't know. maybe milk and cookies. But <laughs> I would I would probably I would have to squeeze in a cheese course as well. I've, I'm a bit bit of a oh yes, please love a cheese course at the end of a meal. Same. I'll, I'll take a, a cheese plate over dessert at any day of the week, and exactly. then you'll have you'll have to have some espresso and then go right to sleep, right? Square dark chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> it's come full circle on this episode of Food Network Obsessed. Mark, thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight speaking with you and look forward to watching you on Chop for many more years. Well, thank you for having me. And I, I feel bad. I didn't I feel like I, I don't like to have conversations without asking some questions of you as well. But oh, I guess sure. that's not the way it I mean, works. Go, go for where, it. Where, 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 where are you? Where do you live? Where do you do? I where live, are you located? I live in Brooklyn. Uh, oh, okay. I live up here in Brooklyn. Yeah. Fellow New Yorker for the last four years. Uh, originally from Montana, but I've I've lived all over the place as well. So uh, okay. not, not in other countries as much uh, aside from Spain and college. But um, okay. but definitely a lot. A lot of different places all over the country. And how have you been finding uh, doing this podcast with all these Food Network people? I mean, what's your what's been your uh, experience? How, how do you like it? I absolutely love it. Um, you know, my my background is journalism. Um, I was a sports broadcaster for many years, including ESPN. So it, it allows me to kind of tap into those interviewing skills that I, I honed for so many years. And, um, you know, throughout the years had had to shorten all of our interviews because, you know, of time constraints on TV. So this this lets us uh, have a little bit more fun and let let things breathe a little bit more. Well, it's been it's been interesting and fun watching you grow in this space and uh, I guess moving away from one sport to another and eating can be a sport. Right. And I I think much more interesting. If I would be honest with you, you probably. (laughs) I agree. I agree. That's why that's why I'm here. Uh, Awesome. Thank you so much again. We uh, thoroughly enjoyed having you. Great to see you. Thank you very much. Love Mark and his dedication to the network and as a judge over the years, all of the behind the scenes stories of Chopped. You can catch Mark on Chopped streaming now on Discovery+. Plus. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us wherever you're listening to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And of course, if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. 